The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. So in the previous chapters, we've been we've been reading about the the story of what the early church thought happened at the cross. Okay, so we looked at what the cross looks like in the book of Acts, and we looked at what does the cross look like in the Gospels, and how do the writers in, in each of those cases talk about the cross, and what how they understood what the cross was, and what the cross accomplished. And so now we're turning our eyes to say, okay, then what do we see in Paul? Because of course, that's a, a, a big question for us. Um, I think N.T. Wright said earlier that a lot of times what happens when, it, at least what happens historically, when we want to answer the question, what, 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 what did God accomplish at the cross? We ignore Acts and we ignore the Gospels and we go straight to Paul and we say, all right, well, here is what Paul says. And then we sort of cherry pick a couple of phrases out of Paul. And then we use that to create this, this schema that, that helps us to interpret the cross. And so what Wright is asking us to do is to say, well, let's just put Paul on pause for just a second, and let's see what does the cross look like in its historical context? What does the cross look like in the Gospels? What does it look like when the earliest Christians interact with it? And then taking those stories as the lens that we're going to use to interpret what happens forward, let's then turn and look at Paul and see if when we read Paul in that way, we find the same story that we found before, or do we see Paul talking about the cross differently because our eyes and our ears, because our hearts are attuned to reading different themes and, uh, and, and different concepts because we have spent so much time looking at the cross in the Gospels and in the early church, okay? So we're going to read chapter 11, or well, we've already read, we're going to discuss chapter 11, and then we're going to discuss chapter 12. Now, chapter 11 is sort of a, a brief summary of some of the major cross-related content from Paul's epistles. And then chapter 12 and chapter 13 are going to be about Romans, just Romans, two entire chapters devoted to Romans. Um, so what we're doing for this study is we're going to look at the places where, where Paul is interacting with the meaning of the cross in his epistles. And then we're going to begin talking about Romans by first taking uh, a very broad overview, because chapter 12 is ultimately about giving us a broad view of what Paul is doing in the book of Romans before, in chapter 13, we turn specifically to the passage in, in chapter 3 and some of the chapters following, where Paul is most explicitly addressing uh, what it is that God accomplished in Christ at the cross. So the plan is to cover these two chapters now, um, and then having covered these two chapters, having gotten an overview of Paul in general, and then Romans in general, the next, the next meeting will be on July 4th. We're just going to talk about that, that, that chapter from, uh, from, from Romans. So we're only going to discuss chapter 13 at our next meeting, okay? And then our final meeting will be the, our, the whatever the, the third Sunday in July, uh, will be our final meeting, and we'll cover chapters 14 and chapters uh, chapter 15. And that will bring our discussion to a close, all right? So we're talking first about chapter 11. This is Paul and the cross, all right? So he says at the very beginning of this that we have a lot of wrong assumptions when we read Paul. He sort of begins this by talking about somebody who sent him a very long email uh, trying to set N.T. Wright straight. 
And so he talks about this email on page uh, on page 228. He says, set out in, in great theological detail this entire scheme based on the idea of imputation in which our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. The theory was laid out with copious references to learned writers from the 19th and earliest 20th centuries with one or two of their more recent exponents as well. Within the scheme, more or less, everything can be made to work, much like a politician's speech, where all the awkward bits of evidence that don't quite support the party line can either be twisted into shape or swept quietly to the side. Thus, sacrificial language, it's usually assumed, can be called, uh, can be about penal substitution, since it's thought the animal is killed in punishment for the sins of the worshiper. Victory over the powers can be a dramatic way of saying that we are freed from the power as well as the guilt and penalty of our sin and so on. But like an intelligent audience at a political rally, careful readers of Paul may well conclude that in this scheme, we have been told only one story and that this story, though it may contain a powerful truth, is being distorted by not displaying by not being displayed in relation to the other stories with which it belongs and in relation to which it gains its true meaning. Okay, so this story about imputation, about, uh, about Christ becoming the stand-in for our sins, about us receiving the righteousness of God, that's an important, a, a central part of what it is that the cross is doing, but it's not the story. It's just a part of the story. And N.T. Wright wants us to understand the larger story so that we don't make the wrong assumptions about what uh, about what God's righteousness looks like in Christ and in us, and so that we don't misunderstand what is happening when Scripture, and specifically here what Paul is talking about when he uses the ideas of sacrifice. Now, he gives us a couple of framing ideas here at the beginning. He says on, on chapter, or, or I'm sorry, on page 228 and then 229, these two goals that we find in Paul. And the first goal, he says, uh, he says that there are these, these two goals. Paul shared the early Christian vision of the goal of redemption, and that goal is that not that we are being saved for heaven or simply to be with God forever, but to share in the royal and priestly human work within the present world and the world to come. Okay, so the first is that redemption is all about leading us toward new creation. The purpose of redemption is for God's people to be, to be taken toward new creation. And then the second one that he brings up is that the death of Jesus is the means through which new creation is attained. Okay, those two things need to be the, the lens through which we read from Paul, whether we're encountering Paul, uh, you know, in, in his long letter to the Romans or his short epistles to, uh, you know, to, to the, the, the churches in Asia Minor or his one-page epistle to, to, uh, to Philemon. Uh, what, wh wherever Paul is writing, we need to take this as the, the lens through which we understand what Paul means when he talks about salvation. For Paul, salvation is redemption, which is the whole, everything moving toward a new creation, and that Jesus's death is the means through which the new creation is attained. New creation begins because of what Jesus does on the cross, and that that is the purpose of God for the whole of humanity, and specifically that is the purpose of God for his people. Whether, whether we refer to his people as Israel or we refer to his people as the church, whatever way that we're talking about that, the purpose of God is for us to be in the midst of new creation alongside him, okay? Now, when you read those first two things, when you, when, when you encountered that in N.T. In Wright's book, did that help you? Did you guys find that to be a helpful lens to say, okay, if I have these two things in front of me, that may change what I what I see and what I hear when I'm reading Paul, or did these or or did those two ideas come at you and you said no that's pretty much what the the way that I've always learned how to read Paul. I know for me personally, when when I encountered Paul, mine was much more the way that he described at the top of two twenty eight that idea of imputed righteousness, uh, that that idea of 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 sacrificial death that it was all through that lens of Christ 
becoming be, becoming you know the which he's going to talk about that passage in in just a little bit he he becomes sin who knows no sin uh you know he's he's going to reference that in just a minute but had those those two lenses this idea of the purpose of of God being being establishing a new creation and that that new creation is attained through Christ's death. Does that lens, is that lens something new for you? Does that lens help you? Do you find that to be a useful way of, of encountering Paul? What do you think? I think one of the best ways I have to describe it is that second goal where he says that uh, the means by which the goal is accomplished is through the death. That one is nothing new. I think that one is, that's the one that everyone in all their frameworks kind of agrees upon. Um, if they're going to even pretend to call themselves Christian, much less actually be one form of Christian or another. I think that first one, however, that first lens where he talks about the actual goal, I think that's the big one. That's the key. Because I think that one's more like the aiming mechanism for that second aspect. It's like, what is, okay, yes, Jesus' death is getting us somewhere, but where is it getting us to? And so you can say, yes, it's by the means of Jesus' death that insert the quasi or not so quasi pagan story that has crept its way into the church or the original biblical story. The, the death is the same means in each case it's what's the goal and what's the meaning of that death based on that goal i think that's what's helped it for me although it can be easy to lose sight of that when you look back at a lot of the translations that we have now which use words that have all of this 16th and 18th century baggage attached to it so that's that's been the hard part for me is to disassociate meanings from words that I'm used to associating meanings with. Yeah, that's good. It's it's hard to relearn definitions for words. Um, you know, even when we started doing the the um, the Bible study, and this you know this was a number of years ago, but misreading scripture through Western eyes, when they started talking about the relationship between um, between faith. Uh, and and the way that faith worked in the ancient world, and and this this new understanding of what it meant for people to to have faith and to and to show love and to show charity and these things these these ideas that were that were very commonplace in especially in Paul's world and and in the the world of the New Testament that we have our own definitions and our own completely different meanings for all of those words and now when I go back I have to reread Scripture in a completely different way because these words don't mean what I think they mean, right? You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. That's the, you know, the, the thing that keeps happening over and over. Well, you keep saying grace, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's, it, it's, a, it's hard work, yeah. All right, so he goes on at the very beginning and he wants to draw our attention back to 1 Corinthians 15, because this is a, a thing that he's, he's talked about over and over again, this idea that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Bible. Now, as he as he said this again, I remembered driving through one of the roads in Kentucky that's that, that's south of here, and there was a church that, in you know, in 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 all charity, was trying to share the gospel message with its neighbors who were driving back and forth on this road. But what they kept saying over and over again, they had these giant billboards, uh, you know, up everywhere, and they said the Messiah died. And the translation that they use is according to the Bible. And so that was what they made that part in bold and they drew a line under it. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the Bible, according to the Bible. And what they meant was this is true because the Bible says it's true. But what N.T. Wright wants to point out to us is that that's not what that phrase means. What that phrase means, according to the Bible, is in accordance with the Bible, right? In unity with the Bible, in the midst of the story that the Bible is telling. That, that it's not just the Bible says that it happened so that it, so it happened. What that means is, in harmony with the whole story of Scripture, Jesus died for our sins and was buried 
and was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that all of that is in accordance with, in harmony with, in union with the entirety of Scripture. The whole story that God is telling in and through his people is brought to its fullness and its completion in the person of Jesus Christ, and that something new happens then, and that we are now living in the midst of that newness. That that and that new life that we live in the midst of God's kingdom is in accordance with the Bible. It is in harmony with, union with the Bible, the story that God has been telling all along about his people. And so this idea of unity, he, he mentions this again at the bottom of page, uh, page 233. He keeps talking about the Messiah as a servant and that that's important, that this servant has, that, that he has brought to its appointed goal, the destiny of Abraham's people, not so they could escape the world and go up to heaven, but so that they could be a part of a worldwide people of praise united worship here and now, rather than disunited church life in the present and distant heaven after death, was always, as far as Paul is concerned, the divinely intended goal of the Messiah's death, that what the death is accomplishing is this united worship here and now. So then he moves on, he says, so to understand what we're talking about here, we need to jump into Galatians. So the, the point that he sort of is driving at here in Galatians, and I'm looking at page right at the beginning at 234 and 235, is he's pointing out that this letter is not about salvation, that that, that word, and in fact, that idea doesn't show up at all in this letter, that the reason that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia is that it is that he wants to encourage unity. The purpose of this letter is not for them to understand their salvation, but to understand unity within the body of Christ. He said that he says in the middle of 234 that this unity is the fact that in the Messiah, particularly through his death, the one God has done what was promised Abraham all along. He has given him a single family in which believing Jews and believing Gentiles form one single body. But then he goes on and he says, and the reason that this happens is because what God has accomplished is a new exodus, that God has given to his people a new exodus, that that's what this idea of for our sins means. Over on 235, he, he points this out explicitly. For our sins corresponds to the forgiveness and return from exile strand, and then it drives this new Passover. The new Passover is all about release, not from political enslavement under pagan empires, but as it was in the original Exodus, but the ultimate enslavement under the force of sin as a power. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about sin, capital S, as a power when we get into, in, into Romans. This is sort of the, the first time that we're, we're looking at that. But this idea of a new Passover, a new Exodus that has been accomplished is extremely, extremely important. And he continues on on 236 and 237. I love this, this section, this whole paragraph right here. The whole argument of the letter that Gentile believers are full members already in the single family promised to Abraham, and that therefore they should in no circumstance think about getting circumcised, is all held together with these bookends. Paul clearly has in mind a temporal scheme in which the Mosaic law was designed to serve its God-given purpose for a deliberately limited period of time, a kind of long bracket between the original promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of that promise in the messianic creation of the single family. And so that temporary period is like Israel's sojourn in Egypt. It was a form of slavery shared by Israel and the non-Israelite nations alike. But the center of the letter is a compressed Passover narrative designed exactly to deal with this situation of total human slavery. The divine initiative to send both Jesus and the Spirit was the action that turned the corner, bringing the world as a whole and the Messiah's people in particular into a new world in which the power of evil had been dealt a fatal blow. 
God's people are no longer kept under slavery, whether whether to 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 the law or or to or or to uh, pagan empires. That that is that that's not a part of the story that God is telling about His people any longer. And he points out, and I thought that this was really important, he points out that the language that Paul is using, especially in chapter 3, is language that directly echoes the book of Deuteronomy. And it's important for us to remember this because most of, I, 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 would, I would venture to guess that most of us couldn't name the last time that we read the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe read from it, right? I mean, that that happens sometimes in our lectionary, and certainly sometimes on Sundays, like we'll read a passage here. I think we had a passage from Deuteronomy a couple of weeks ago in our in our Sunday lectionary. Um, but to actually sit down and read Deuteronomy, we don't really do that. That's not that's not a normal experience. If we're doing like a Bible in a year kind of a thing, then maybe we'll have read that. So you know, like the last time that we did that. But but this whole passage here about cursing people who are under the law and cursing people who are on trees and here's a curse and there's a curse and everywhere a curse curse he says that this language is really theologically dense and it's really hard to wrap our heads around because we don't pay attention to the books that paul is alluding to that what paul is alluding to directly is to deuteronomy and specifically the toward the end of deuteronomy is the passage where moses establishes this covenant between God's people as they're about to enter the promised land. And it turns into a list of warnings, and those warnings then change into prophetic words, that he begins speaking prophetic words, because he's not talking about individual behavior. He's talking about what God is doing amongst God's people and the response of, of, of God to the work of God's people. So he says they're kind of in, in the, middle, the, the middle end of that first big paragraph. Deuteronomy envisages a single narrative, and the book was read in that way in the first century. Israel as a whole will rebel, will disobey, will worship idols, and Israel as a whole will therefore incur the ultimate curse, exile from the land, the long-range biblical equivalent to Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. Then, eventually, there will be restoration. And that restoration, Paul argues, is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ends the exile. It's all of that language about Exodus. It's all about that language of Passover. All of that is, is bound up together in this idea that God of, of what it is that God is accomplishing in and through the Messiah. Now, that to me is not the way that I have ever encountered the book of Galatians before. Just that, that, that's never the way that Galatians has been explained, at least not in, in the way that I've read in, uh, in, in, in the past. So let's jump, let's jump forward a little bit and talk about Corinthians, because I want to I, I make sure we're sensitive to our time, because we do have a lot of content in Romans that we want to discuss as well. All right, so <laughs> so let's so he what what he says about Corinthians is again that what God is doing is revealing the the relationship between uh, b- between sin and corporate consequences. Okay, because oftentimes for us when we talk about sin, what we mean is bad behavior, right? Sin equals bad behavior, and over and over again, what N.T. Wright is pointing to is that individual sin, individual bad behavior happens because of corporate sinfulness, because of idolatry. We create a culture in which we each sin individually. But so often we are taught to read scripture in an individualistic way. This is a story about Jesus and what Jesus did for me. And because he did this thing for me, then I get a certain benefit. But that's not why Paul is writing these letters. He doesn't write these letters to one single person with a couple of exceptions. There there are a handful of letters that are actually named for the people to whom he sent them. So Timothy, Philemon, uh, you know, those those very short books where he's writing in in that way. But generally, he's writing to the entire church, right? And we kind of talked about this a little bit when we did that Western misreading scripture book right, that we oftentimes will read scripture and we will insert I instead of inserting we, that we'll, we'll, we'll hear you when what Paul is actually writing is y'all. And, and we, we miss that because of the way that it's translated, because we don't typically, because 
because it would be silly if we if we translated as yuns, right? We wouldn't we wouldn't want to put an all y'all in the middle of you know Paul's Paul's epistle to the second epistle to the Corinthians. We wouldn't put it in there because nobody would take that translation seriously. So we just say you and the you. It has to be understood from the context to be a plural you or a collective you. But typically, that's the way that Paul is talking. And so we we hear this talk about sin, and what he's talking about is our sin in general. He's talking about sin with a big S, not sins with a little s. So in Corinthians, um, he talks over and over again about this final victory, okay? That the, the Messiah has accomplished a final victory, that he died for our sins in accordance with the Bible, okay? I'm on page 248 here. Thus, he says, thus, in a verse we've had occasion to quote before, if the Messiah wasn't raised, your faith is pointless and you're still in your sins. From 1517, the Corinthians would still be in their sins, not because they were not really converted, not because their faith was not strong enough, not because they showed no evidence of a changed life, but because that would be the case if the Messiah had not been raised. When the Messiah was raised, death was conquered, which meant that sin had been dealt with. That's the link. That's why in accordance with the Bible, the meaning of freedom from all powers, that Passover message, is directly connected to the message of the forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness of sins means the end of exile. Forgiveness of sins means the end of exile. We are no longer exiled from God's presence. We collectively, y'all are no longer exiled from God's presence. We have been brought home. He goes on a couple of pages later, this is on 251, to talk about the, the point. Uh, and this is right at the top of that page. The point throughout is that the crucifixion of the Messiah is not just an event that changed the world once and for all, though it certainly is that. It's not just the mechanism of salvation, though if we must use that language, we can do so without inaccuracy. The Messiah's crucifixion was not a strange one-off deal through which God played a trick on sin and death, after which normal operations were resumed, power went back to being what it always was, and the normal human lifestyles of honor, shame, boasting prestige, social climbing pretension could be picked up again where they left off. Precisely because the Messiah's crucifixion unveiled the very nature of God himself at work in generous self-giving love to overthrow all power structures dealing with the sin that had given them that power, that same divine nature would now be at work through the ministry of the gospel, not only through what was said, but through the character and the circumstance of the people who were saying it. Now listen to that passage again, just the, just the very end, not the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, just that, just that last part of it. Precisely because of the crucifixion, the crucifixion unveils the nature of God, self, his generous self-giving love, and that that generous self-giving love overthrows all power structures because it takes away the power those structures are given by sin. And that that human nature would now be at work through the ministry of the gospel, not only through what was being said, but through the character and the circumstance of those who were saying it. What he's saying here is that God is not just revealing his own character through the event of the crucifixion, but that God is also revealing his character through the kind of community that his crucifixion, his death and resurrection creates. The church is a mirror of God's character, of God's person, of God's love. The kind of, the, the kind of people who proclaim that story are changed by that story, reflect that story through their lives. And he says that that is exactly at the heart of what Paul is trying to describe in 2 Corinthians. And sometimes we get, we, we get caught up in, in other stuff, right? It's so easy for us to get caught up in other things. But he has this, this beautiful section in the middle of 253. And again, he's talking here from 2 Corinthians. Um, that, that this idea of, of God's covenant faithfulness in action is ultimately what 2 Corinthians is all about. Because... 
because first and second Corinthians are very different books. They're, they're talking about things in, in very different ways. But he says here toward the bottom, Jesus was innocent and yet he dies the death of the guilty. But notice what overall narrative frames that statement. It's not the quasi-pagan narrative of an angry or capricious divinity and an, and an accidental victim. It's the story of love, covenant love, faithful love, reconciling love, messianic love. It's the story of the victory of that love because that self-giving love turns out to have a power of a totally different sort from any other power known in the world, which is why Paul is happy to say that he is strong when he is weak. The kind of power that is exhibited and revealed in divine love, in messianic love, is completely different from every other kind of power that we encounter in the world around us. He goes on, and this is why here at last we begin to discover why it has this all-conquering power. If the enslaving powers are to be overthrown, they have to be robbed of their power base. And their power base is, as we saw, the fact that humans hand over power to them by worshiping them instead of worshiping the Creator by the idolatry and the consequent distortion of life that can be lumped together as sin. and one, But once sin has been dealt with, the power of the idols is broken. Once the Messiah has been made sin for us, the way is open for the ministry of reconciliation to fan out in all directions. Inside the Passover-like victory over the powers is the end of exile dealing with sin. And the way sin is dealt with is by the appropriate substitution of the one who is the true representative. The one bore the sin of the many. The innocent died in the place of the guilty. This only makes sense within the narrative of love, the new exodus, the end of exile. It only makes sense in the narrative of Jesus. Put into any other narrative, it becomes a dark pagan horror. Put it back where it belongs, and it speaks of a compelling love. As Paul says, the Messiah's love makes us press on. And that is the radical application of the cross to apostolic life. Now, he's going to go on to point out that, um, you know, that like in Philippians, we're going to see where that, that, that apostolic life being framed by God's love is, is lived out there. He, he spends a lot of time talking about the, the messianic hymn in, in Philippians 2. And the thing that he points out in, in, in reading that hymn, uh, is is that it it's cross-centered that that's that that single hymn is all about God's victory over uh, over the powers of sin and death and that the the hymn describes for us a model of what apostolic life Christ-filled life gospel-centered life looks like but he has this he has this fantastic quote and this is in his discussion on Colossians this is all the way over on on 260 right at the top so he says he says this how does forgiveness result in victory over powers because that's an important question for us to ask we keep saying that over and over again that if sins are forgiven then 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 we have victory over sin and death but like but how does that happen in a practical sense how does it happen <clears throat> He says that in Colossians, here's what we see. We go back to the earlier analysis of sin and idolatry. The idols, and that includes human rulers when they are idolized, whether formally, as in the Roman Empire, or informally, gain that power because humans give it to them. God gave humans power in creation, and humans have given that power over to non-human forces, non-human powers. Humans are designed to worship God and exercise responsibility in this world, but when humans worship idols instead, so their image-bearing humanness corrupts itself into sin, missing the mark of human vocation, they hand over their power to those same idols. The idols then use this power to tyrannize and ultimately to destroy their devotees and the wider world, but when sins are forgiven, the idols lose their power. When sins are forgiven, the idols lose their power. And that, that point that he makes there is an excellent transition for us to move over quickly to the book of Romans. When sins are forgiven, quickly, we're going to move over quickly for the next, how long is this? 
112, 115 pages of the book. This this little quarter, the next quarter of the book, it, we're going to quickly deal with the book of Romans. <laughs> Before we do that, is there anything that you noticed in, in chapter 11 that we didn't talk about? I know I moved through it kind of quickly. There's There's a lot of fantastic content here. It was there something that you read in chapter 11 that you didn't know before? Was there something that caught your attention, something that you 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 encountered and you said that's new? I I like that idea. That's that, that that's a completely new way of looking at that for me. Uh, the Galatians section. Mm -hmm. Um just yes, all of it. <laughs> and I think it's it's interesting that for Wright, he spends more time on Galatians than he does on the entirety of Corinthians. And especially from the Protestant point of view, you would think it would be very much the other way around, that the Corinthian uh, duology would be almost as, uh, almost as thoroughly unpacked as he uh, does with Romans, but it's not. He, he treated Galatians as more important, as it were. Maybe because it really is more important or maybe because it's the one that we've gotten the most wrong. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, that, that maybe maybe it's because we've spent so much time getting that one wrong. Because I remember reading Galatians, and, and this was true about many books in the Bible, where I would have a favorite chapter from the Bible, and I might read that chapter over and over again. There were times in my lives where, where I would have, uh, you know, whole chapters of a book or almost whole chapters of a book memorized. But then I would get to, say, chapter five in Galatians, and it didn't make any sense to me. I was like, well, you know, I don't really have anything to say about that, or, or you know, that would happen in, uh, you know, especially in a in in a in a really dense and intense book like, uh, you know, like Romans or First Corinthians. I but, but because my my vision of salvation was so myopic, there were whole swaths of scripture where I didn't know how to encounter God there because it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense within my own, um, my own perspective. Like I, I just, I couldn't see how that way of, of being a Christian had anything to do with, with me. And so I would, you know, uh, usually I would either just skip over it or if pressed, I would find ways to like minimize it and say, well, he's writing that, you know, to that church. It's just a specific word to that church, or he's writing that within his own, you know, within his own context or, uh, he's writing to that, you know, to, to people who are, are still, uh, you know, under legalism or whatever. I find ways to like minimize that. So I didn't have to deal with passages in Galatians that didn't make any sense or Ephesians or wherever I happen to be. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to chapter 12. All right. So chapter 12 is the death of Jesus in Paul's letter to the Romans, the new Exodus. Chapter 12 is all about talking about the new Exodus. So what he wants us to understand here, and remember I said that we're going to be splitting up chapter, we're going to be splitting up the book of Romans into two separate chapters here. So the chap, chapter 12, which we're reading right now, is going to spend, you know, most of its time talking about, uh, you know, a, like a, a bird's eye view of, of, the, of, of the whole book of Romans. Whereas when we when we jump into chapter thirteen, the the vision that we're going to encounter of what Paul is talking about in Romans is going to be more about um, one specific passage from Romans that we, especially like as as evangelicals, have spent a lot of our time just focusing entirely on on this particular point. All right. So he says that sort of the, the purpose of this is to rescue us from the Romans road way of reading Romans, where we grab a handful of proof texts and then we just sort of dump them on onto, you know, onto people and say, this is Romans. All right. So he says he wants he wants to help us to unravel the puzzle of Romans. And he says the way to do this, this is on page 266 and then on a little bit is threefold. First, we need to understand that Romans is a symphony. All right, we need to encounter Romans the way we would a symphony. That Romans itself is a very well-constructed literary work, okay? It is full of extremely subtle and very carefully crafted turns of phrase, as well as um, 
cultural touchstones. He has a specific way of reading and understanding the Old Testament and tying all of those things together. Um, he also wants us to understand that we have, we have for a very long time read this book as though it were a systematic theology, and it's not. It's, it's a letter that Paul wrote to people in a particular place. It's, it, it's an epistle. It's not dogmatic. It's not systematic. It's not intended to be those things. He's writing a letter to people to help them to understand who they are and to understand what the gospel is and how they are to be uh, living out that life, okay? And then he concludes that by saying that the third theme, so the first theme is we need to read this as though it were a symphony. We also need to read this as though it were a letter and not a dogmatic work. And we need to read this with the goal in mind because the goal over and over again in Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, is a remarkable vision of what in the present book I have called the goal of God's salvation, God's rescue operation. Paul does not say Jesus dies so that we can go to heaven. Heaven is mentioned twice in Romans, once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 10. The primary thing that Paul is driving at is new creation, a new heaven and earth world in which humans can resume their genuinely human vocation as the kingdom of priests and the royal priesthood. That's the purpose, okay? That's what we're driving at. Now, he points out that in, and this is on page 268, that a lot of the, the problem that we have is that we have, uh, culturally, at least as, as Christians, we have assumed that the problem that humanity faces is sin, which we, by which we mean bad behavior. But what he points out, and I thought that this was really, really important, is that when we start in Romans and we ask Paul, what is the problem in the human heart? He doesn't say that the problem in the human heart is moral failing. He says that the problem is ungodliness. So the problem, he says, is not our behavior, though the problems in our behavior follow from it. The problem is that we don't worship correctly. It's a failure of worship, not a failure of behavior. The failure of behavior flows out of our failure to worship. It flows out of our idolatry. But idolatry is primary. Idolatry in, in Romans is the core problem, the center problem in the human life, the thing that draws us away from God, the thing that needs to be dealt with is our idolatry. And that's something that I had never encountered before. Nobody had ever pointed out that that's what he's talking about in chapter one. And as soon as he said that, and I looked over at my Bible and I reread chapter one, I said, how, how did I not see that before? Because for so long, when I read this passage, when I saw godlessness or ungodliness or, or wickedness, those, those phrases, I always, when I encountered those phrases, said, this is a passage about people's bad behavior. Or maybe it was people's bad belief, but typically it was people's bad behavior leads them to more bad behavior and more bad behavior and more bad behavior, and their behavior gets badder and badder and badder. And I have all of these, you know, categories that I've invented for, for you know, one thing being worse than another and worse than another. That's not what Paul is describing there at all. What he's describing is the effect of idolatry, that, that the, the center the central problem is idolatry, and the bad behavior is just a function of that exile. When we are exiled from God's presence, when we are enslaved under, under demonic powers, bad behavior is going to flow out of that. That's just the way that it's going to be. When we are enslaved to demonic rulers, to false gods, to dark idols, to human powers, we are going to end up trapped in bad behaviors. That's just going to be life. So he moves on there and he says this, this really cool passage here on 271 that uh, at, at the top, we have so often talked about this as atonement theology, but it's not atonement theology. This idea of righteousness, of justification is not about atonement theology. It's rather a summary with a particular reference to God's covenant faithfulness of the new exodus, which was achieved on the cross. The word redemption, he says, is almost a technical term for exodus. 
It, of course, awakens echoes of slave markets, but the primary biblical slave market was the Egypt from which God freed the descendants of Abraham. Through this new exodus, despite the failure of Israel that he catalogs in chapter 2, God has brought his long-awaited plan to fruition. That's what we're going to talk more about in the next chapter. But he wants us to understand that beginning, because again, this chapter is just an overview for us of what Romans is and what Paul is trying to accomplish in Romans. So then on the next page, he gives us an outline of what chapters five through eight. So the beginning of the book is, is about Paul saying the problem is idolatry. And he says that, that, that the, the solution to idolatry was not found until Christ, that Christ is the one who sets us free from the dark powers and from the idols, that it's, it's Christ setting us free that establishes and inaugurates the new creation in which we are living and toward which he is bringing creation to its completion. But he says, then what we need to understand is, is this, this larger overview, okay? So at the top of 272, if Romans as a whole is a carefully composed set piece, chapters 5 through 8 are even more so. It doesn't mean, as some have suggested, that this section was written for a different purpose. It means, rather, that we can see several signs that Paul was designing his overall argument with structural and thematic care. Chapters 5 through 8 belong here, exactly here in the argument of the letter as a whole. Several lines of thought flow from chapters 1 through 4 into 5 through 8, and several flow out of 5 through 8 into 9 through 11. We're not going to get into all of those in detail right now. But specifically, he wants to point our attention to chapters 6 through 8, because that's where we find this very explicit reference to new Passover and Exodus within, within Paul's letter. So look down at the bottom of page 272. He says he wants us to, uh, to, to pause for a moment and consider the, the outer framework. The opening paragraph of chapter 5 announces the overall theme to those who are justified by faith, that they're given hope, the hope of the glory of God because of the gift of the Spirit. The line from justification to hope is explained in more detail in the following verses, and then the final celebration at the end of chapter 8. If the Messiah died for us when we were weak, ungodly sinners, then it must follow that through him we will be saved in the end. That's the logic of hope, and it's the logic of love. The divine love displayed in chapter 5 is gloriously celebrated again in chapter 8. But look at what he look at what he he dives into here over on 273. He comes back to this this idea of God's wrath. Okay, the, the coming wrath, he says, the coming anger or wrath of God mentioned by Paul as the primary threat hanging over the human race is first mentioned in chapter 1, 18, and then it's reaffirmed in chapter 2. But most people reading chapter 3 have assumed and then tried to demonstrate that Paul is saying that this wrath falls on Jesus instead of on his people, that God put Jesus forth as a propitiation, a means of turning away wrath. That's the position that I, this is N.T. Wright, but also I, Lee, this is the position that I myself have taken uh, in, in previously. But there's a problem with this, because here in Romans chapter 5, Paul refers back to being justified by his blood, which is a clear summary of chapter 3. And then he says that this is the result of justification. That I'm sorry, he says that as a result of this justification, believers will be saved by Jesus from the wrath or anger still to come. And that doesn't make any sense. Either we are saved from the wrath or we aren't saved. We can't be saved and not saved and then get saved. That's not that that's not how language works. It certainly is not how Greek works. But it's so it seems that what he's saying is something entirely different. And he and he brings that to conclusion on the next page, on 274. 274, he talks about this overlapping language about Jesus's death, because it's a he says this is a very, very dense passage, and so we're going to, he, he spends a lot of time talking about this passage, but this one I thought was really helpful. In and through it all, he says Jesus's death is referred to in several of these overlapping ways. It's the gift of grace through the one person, Jesus the Messiah, it's the free gift, it's the abundance of grace, it's the upright act, it's the obedience, the last of these echoing obedient even under death, which is our quote from Philippians 2, which he talked about in the last chapter, and all of that is seen as the work of God's faithful covenant justice. All of that together is God's faithful covenant 
justice, an English phrase struggling to translate and unpack that dense language that Paul uses in verse 21. And in particular, it's about the inauguration of the reign of God or of grace. The idea of the reign of grace is shorthand for God's reign, God's kingdom, the reign of divine grace. This is, in other words, kingdom of God language. This language about what it is that Christ's death accomplishes is kingdom of God. That's what Paul is arguing in chapter 5, that what Christ accomplishes is the inauguration, the beginning, the realization of God's kingdom, that he brings to bear God's kingdom. So he continues on talking about this idea that in chapter 6 through 8, we see this idea of new exodus over and over and over again. He says that redemption at the very beginning of that chapter, we just read that quote, that redemption is exodus language, okay? Redemption has to do with, is, is something that occurs in a slave market. In, in Paul's culture, it's a slave market. And references to slave markets and to redemption in scripture are intended to draw our attention back to what God accomplished for his people in bringing them out of Israel. That God redeemed his son out of Egypt, I have called my child. This, this language that, that, that the Old Testament uses over and over again, this language of redemption is when, when we hear that, it's intended to say we're being redeemed from something. We're being bought back from something. Redemption is an exodus term. These chapters, chapters six through eight, are like Galatians four, only much fully, much more fully constitute an exodus narrative. Why is it that Paul chooses to write an exodus narrative at this point? Once again, that question that should have been so obvious, and I've never noticed it before, because Jesus chose Passover as the explanatory setting for what he had to do. Jesus could have picked any other feast in which to confront the religious powers at Jerusalem, and Jesus chose Passover. And then he took the symbols of Passover, and he gave those symbols to his disciples and told them, if you want to understand what's about to happen, look at this. He took Passover, and he gave it to his disciples and said, what I'm doing is this. This is going to be your new Passover. The Passover was never about the forgiveness of sins. The Passover was always about God restoring God's people. It was about God rescuing his people from, from foreign dark powers. So Paul chooses to write an Exodus narrative right here in the middle of the book to, to the Romans because this idea of Passover is at the center. He says the early church from then on, as we've seen, used Passover as the basic route to understanding why he died. Paul picks it up and celebrates it. Passover has to do with the overthrow of the powers of evil, the rescue of God's people as they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, the giving of the law, and above all, the strange, dangerous presence of God himself, fulfilling his promises, coming to dwell in the tabernacle, and leading the people on a long, difficult journey through the wilderness to their promised inheritance. All of these themes find their home in Romans 6 through 8, within the narrative of Messiah and Spirit, and at the heart of them again and again is the Messiah's death. So he has this wonderful passage, and I don't want to read the entire thing, but essentially from the bottom of 278 through like the middle of 280 is just this absolutely staggering passage talking about Romans 6. But I, I want to read just a couple of snippets. So, so I'm, I, I would encourage you, if you don't remember this little bit here, I, I literally had to had to fight the the impulse to just underline this entire page. I was like, I just need to like photocopy this page and carry it around with me until I've memorized it. But just just a couple of snippets. He says, as we read Romans 6 carefully, we discover that Paul is steadily unpacking the dense opening statement of chapter 5, 12 through 21. That passage that we saw was all about the sovereign rescuing rule of God. In other words, the kingdom of God, just as in Philippians chapter 2, the obedient death of Jesus is the way in which a new kind of power is unleashed into the world, the power of sovereign redeeming love. 
a new reality has come to birth, just as it did when God overthrew the oppressors in Egypt and rescued his people from slavery. He says later on, victory over hostile powers and the rescue of God's people from their deadly grip is clearly the big picture, the Passover picture, the kingdom of God picture. And as we've seen, the dying from sins elements represent the retrieval of the other great narrative of ancient Israel. Israel's sins resulted in exile. Exile was prolonged. A new slavery had been the result. So a new Passover has to be affected through sins being forgiven. And sins are forgiven, as we've seen in the gospel and in Paul's other letters, through the representative and substitutionary death of Jesus. Jesus forgives sins, and the forgiveness of sins accomplishes the overthrow of the powers of, of death and the devil. These dark, inhuman powers are overthrown because the power given to them by sin is undone. Sins are forgiven. They have power over God's people no more. They are undone. So he talks a little bit more about what it is that the law is accomplishing. And I, I mean, we're, we're, we're over an hour at, at this point. Um, so I don't want to dive into that exactly. We may come back around to that because he talks a little bit more about that in the next chapter. But he does make an important point that, that, that is, it, it, it's important for us to bring up because it's so easy to slip back into older ways of reading Paul and reading the New Testament. And that, that point is just this, that sin is being punished. Jesus is not being punished. Okay. And he says this as, as his conclusion to, uh, to reading chapter eight, that there's no condemnation for those in the Messiah because God condemned sin in the flesh. The punishment has been meted out, but the punishment is against sin, not against the Messiah the personified force of sin that has wreaked havoc in the world. But God punished sin in the flesh of Jesus, not in Jesus. And this is why that's important, because it's so easy for us when we're reading this passage, as probably has happened in many of our lives. Certainly it's happened in, in my own life, in my own teaching, in my own preaching, in, in my own presentation, to, to draw this clear distinction between what it is that father is doing in the midst of of the crucifixion what it is that christ is accomplishing where the spirit is at work to draw these clear distinctions between that even even if you just listen to the way that the, the way that i describe it that that when when i say that god condemned sin right there in the flesh what what happens when i read that is that in my mind i picture Jesus stepping in and the Father punishing sin, but that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is that God condemned sin in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Not the Father does, God does. That this action of condemning sin is something that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all active in doing. That when Jesus presents sin in the flesh, that it's Jesus himself who is giving that up and is destroying sin all at once at the same time. And that's so critical for us to understand that this isn't something that God does to Jesus, that this is something that God does for his people. God takes sin into God's self, and God destroys sin, and in God's self, God destroys the power of sin, that is death. God sets God's people free. That's what happens at the cross, and if we miss that, then we begin to mischaracterize who God is and what God is doing and the way that God loves. The way that we talk about the gospel starts to unravel because we've misunderstood the relationship between God and God's beloved. That is between God and between God's people. That's what it means for him to be doing this in accordance with the Bible. Over and over and over again, what God does in accordance with the Bible is that he becomes the one who fulfills the covenant. God becomes the one who upholds the covenant because that's the way that God loves. That faithful, hesed love of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, to understand this whole passage, really, you can, you can kind of just turn to page 288. Uh, and start at the top and go through the, the end of that. It's like two paragraphs, and he consolidates all of that together there, and, and it's, it, it's really, really extremely helpful. Uh, but that is sort of the big 
the big, huge overview. And he says, that doesn't give us enough time to delve into what Paul is talking about in chapter three. So chapter 13 is going to be all about what it is that Paul is describing in chapter 13 of Romans. And that's where we're going to go in our next meeting. But before we transition there, like I said, both of these chapters are really dense. There's a whole lot of information to cover here. But I just wonder if there was something that, that, caught your attention in particular in this passage? Or even, was there something that, that N.T. Wright was saying here where you said, well, just let's pause there for a second and you want to give, you want to give Tom a little pushback. Maybe, maybe he's, he's argued himself too far. He didn't fully explain his point or something along those lines. Here, I really love that, that passage on page 288. That was, I think, one of my favorite parts in the whole, in the whole chapter. I can relate to that as well, that that whole section, uh, just that that whole part where he goes through talking about dealing with sin, the uh, personified the capital S sin. Um, that's that was really good and powerful. And that coincided with me finding um, this uh, one, uh, this one guy, uh, he has some of his lectures up on YouTube. Um, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, I think is his name. Uh, he does, he's done a lot of work dealing with uh, the Old Testamental uh, literature period, in particular uh, Enochian literature and how that aspect of things, he's like, yeah, no, it's not inspired, it's not scripture and it's not scripture for a reason, but books don't have to be scripture to be vastly important. And he goes, and those ideas are held to be of fundamental importance, so fundamental that it's not talked about by the writers, the authors of the New Testament, uh, not of the New Testament, well, the New Testament as well, but the Old Testament too. A lot of the mythos for the surrounding cultures are just known to the authors of uh, the Pentateuch, to the authors of the uh, the history books, or to the prophets. It's because the people who are writing stuff down, if you're a scribe, you also know the lingua franca of whatever time period you're in, which for uh, when the first five books were written, that was Akkadian. And so all the Babylonian myths were known. And so a lot of what was talked about in Genesis, like the Genesis 6, 1 through 4, with the Nephilim and stuff that's just hinted at, is dealt with through a lot of those old myths and how the ideas of the gods, the deities, these different pantheons were like, no, those were beings created by God and they rebel and they coerced humans into corruption and sin. And then so that the humans would give them more power by worshiping them. And it's like how all that fed together. And I'm, you know, I'm just reading this stuff, watching this stuff, looking it up and not just trusting a random guy <laughs> for no reason. But it's like, oh, that unlocks so much meaning with that Old Testament stuff that Paul or Peter are alluding to in these passages. There's just so much that's there and available to them that isn't to us that we have to work through. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, and that's especially true when, uh, you know, obviously when we're reading Paul, but anytime we're reading scripture, we I, I just am continually impressed, like, you know, thinking back to to the the study that I did, you know, at last la last year over the book of Hosea, and when you when you deep dive into Hosea, you not only see the way that Hosea was influenced by the other the other stories, the the these themes and these concepts that keep coming up over and over again in Hosea, but then Hosea becomes part of the cultural world, the, the literary imagination of the writers of the New Testament. And so you find callbacks to this, even when it's not a direct callback, they, they play fast and loose with, you know, with, with, with whatever the, you know, with pulling scripture out of context in the, in, in the New Testament, because it's not just, it doesn't just mean what it means in the context of Hosea. It also means what it means in the context of their culture. And so they, they use it that way. And because we especially as it relates to the old testament like he was saying about the you know the the references to deuteronomy in in romans and and the other books we miss that 
and what and and the effect of that is that now we misunderstand what's happening because we are so often biblically illiterate we we don't recognize even direct quotes when they happen we you know we we have reference bibles that are that are there because we don't recognize those things but the early readers didn't have a reference bible and yet they knew the references because that was a part of who they, they were that was how they lived that, that was that that was scripture and text to them and so as they were reading these texts they understood those those quotations they didn't need you know a bunch of mar you know notes in the margin to explain that they they knew that because it was part of that cultural imagination where for us it's just it, it's just not anymore. it's like uh with how much this pulls on the exodus narrative mm -hmm. that was when you read exodus it you know, it literally describes the plagues. God says, no, this is me passing judgment on the gods of Egypt. That it happens to be on the Egyptian peoples, well, that's because they allied themselves with the gods of Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's me passing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And then when you look at how they describe the setup of the tabernacle and the encampment of the Israelite people, that was an exact parallel to Egyptian war camps. The tabernacle was set up to be Yahweh's parallel to the war camp of Pharaoh, who held himself up to be the personification of Horus or the sun god, depending on which era you're in. And it's like, so no, which divine warrior is going to be supreme? Well, it's Yahweh. And so all of that is just tucked into the knowledge of the background of Exodus that's not mentioned at all ever in scripture because people just go, oh yeah, no, that's all the context that's in it. Mm -hmm. They just know that, you know. I, I think I mentioned some of that in in my discussion about the 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 book of Revelation and that study that we did on on John's Revelation. There's so much of that that is the it's just the way that the scripture writers are. They're so they they just consistently are drawing off of influences in in their culture uh, and and in the the community and the times around them they're drawing out of scripture they're drawing out of other literature constantly and they're not you know they're not citing references they don't they don't submit a bibliography for publication they just they just write the letters and then they give them to people and people understand them in that context in a way that we just don't and we really have to read carefully and read cautiously uh, as as we're as we're diving into in, into books like that, which is what and I love about and a lot, yeah, which is what I love about this th this book, especially you know this this deep dive into Romans is so helpful because Romans is one of those books that feels so dense and so huge that it can be a little bit overwhelming, and so instead of instead of trying to understand it well, we oftentimes just read through it quickly, grab a few proof texts out, and then we just run with it, and we say, okay, well I understand Romans, like no. We need to spend some more time in in romans um, and so that's you know kind of what we're going to do thank you for checking out thin places today if you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies devotionals and worship from saint aidan's church in nicholasville kentucky and make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.